Hello, this is Al Scanlon, better known as Big Al. I was the manager of the amusement park at Neverland for 15 years, and I want to welcome everybody to MJCast. The following is a presentation from the MJCast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJCast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's, that's one of my favorite things. I love you! <laughs> I love my fans. Just simply Michael Jackson. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello, listeners, and welcome to our special episode of the MJ Cast in honor of Michael Jackson's 61st birthday. I, of course, am Q, and I'm here with my co host, Jamin Bull. Now, at the MJ Cast, we've always balanced learning about Michael Jackson, the artist, with learning about Michael Jackson, the man. And what better way to do that than exploring the history of his incredible home, Neverland Valley Ranch, through the stories of one of its most important employees. From 1990 to 2005, Alan Big Al Scanlon worked for Michael as Neverland's Director of Maintenance. He was responsible for rounds and attractions, including the theatre, rides and trains. He also became a close personal friend of Michael's. Not only was Neverland a stunningly gorgeous fairy tale home for Michael and his family, but it was also a place of refuge, entertainment and hope for underprivileged children. It's no secret that Michael would bring sick and disadvantaged kids out to Neverland by the busload in an effort to improve their reality. And it wasn't just Michael who made this incredible humanitarian effort a reality, but those around him, like Big Al as well. We can't wait to get into these stories. Happy birthday, Michael. What better way to celebrate than a trip to Neverland? Big Al, welcome to the MJ cast. Thank you very much for having me. I need to know the nickname. Where has it come from? (laughs) Well... I guess the uh, simple short version is uh, pretty much most of my life I've been a fairly large person. <laughs> you are so at, pretty tall. Well, how tall are you? <laughs> yeah, just a just a hair over six foot and okay. uh, and uh, and uh, fairly large. Yes. <laughs> and it stuck with you, Big Al. It stuck with me. Yeah, somebody somebody started calling me that in high school and it just kind of stuck with me and um, where where did you grow up where where were you as a child what part of the US are you from well I was born in a very small town in Montana which is way up uh, in the northern part of the United States we moved to uh, Phoenix Arizona well actually Scottsdale is a suburb of Phoenix when I was about 10 years old so I, I really tell people that I grew up in Phoenix Arizona because I went through most of grade school and all of high school and that was my home for most of my life and, and what sort of childhood did you have well in a small town in Montana and I was born in the uh, mid 50s so it was a uh, you know that was back in the day when kids went outside and played outside all the time and we had of course in Montana we had all the seasons and Again, when you're a kid, it uh, doesn't really matter what the weather's like outside. You adapt to it and learn how to play in it and have fun in it. And uh, 
it was quite a shock though moving from there to Arizona, where uh, well that part of where the part of Arizona that I I grew up in Phoenix, no snow obviously, and uh, it stays fairly uh, decent all year round, and gets pretty hot actually in the summertime. So, but it was yeah, it was kind of a shock because I was in a really small town where just about everybody knew everybody. Half the kids I went to school with, we all walked to school, you know. So and then to move to a uh, a town like Phoenix, it was it was quite a shock, but um, I adapted. <laughs> big Al, I need to know, you sort of still work in carnivals and, and big events like that, but I really am curious, what was the first carnival that you remember visiting? I was probably maybe, I'm going to say, six or seven years old. My dad, again, this small town we grew up in, or that I grew up in, my dad was on the fair board, and... Uh, of course, so when we went to the fair, he would, and I, I didn't know any of this was happening back in those days, but now that I'm familiar with the business, you know, when you're on the fair board, you get, you get uh, free passes to the fair, you get free carnival rides, you get your kids get stuffed animals. I mean, you get it, you know, they treat you to everything because you're, you know, VIP or whatever. Well, I didn't know all that, but I just remember going to the fair and I do remember the guy that owned the carnival. I don't remember his name, but my dad introduced me to him. He had, was missing an arm, and that as a little kid, it scared me. I, I'd never seen that before. And, and uh, many, many years later, I met a guy named Ray Kamick, who has a very nice, large carnival. He's passed away since. but And I told him this story, and he goes, that is the guy that I started in the business with. I bought my first carnival from that guy. <laughs> and wow. I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't, <laughs> believe, I couldn't believe that. Yeah, but but uh, so, so yeah, that, that's where my, my first recollection of going. And I remember as a young kid back then, I, I think I, I must have been um, very impressed with the carnival, carnival life or business or whatever, because I remember as a little kid in the playground, I, I actually kind of pretended like I was, uh, you know, a, the, the merry-go-round in, the, in the, the playground. I pretended like I was the guy running, you know, running the ride. And <laughs> so, so maybe I was, maybe I was, uh, maybe I was just meant to be in this business for the rest of my life. I don't know. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that is great. That's great. Well, I mean, walk us through exactly how you went from being a carnival loving kid to actually getting a break in the industry and then making it a reality. How it started was. Um, I think I was uh, probably still in high school, a strip mall that a lot of my buddies and I hung out at. There was a, a billiards parlor there, and I played I played billiards when I was a youngster. And, and I remember a carnival came to town, and the guy came in and uh, asked if there was anybody that wanted to help set up, you know, give him, you know, whatever it was, a, you know, a dollar an hour or something, whatever. I can't remember. But uh, so we went out there and helped. And, man, it was hard work because back in those days, everything was – you know, big giant hunks of steel that you picked up by hand and drug them out of a trailer. And, and uh, anyway, it was really hard work, but, you know, we made a few extra bucks and I thought that was kind of fun. And then, and then I actually ended up running a ride for them and I followed them around a little bit while they were in Phoenix. And then when they left town, of course, I, you know, I was too young to go out on the road. And, and then later on, when I got out of high school, I did the same thing. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Do I want to go in the military? Do I want to go on? Did I want to further my education? I thought, well, I'm going to go out with these guys just for a summer. And, of course, it's a little different when you're you're doing it in the town you live in and you get to go home to your nice big house with a swimming pool in the backyard. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're out there and, you know, everything you own is in a paper bag and you're living where, you know, underneath a truck or wherever. And I go, man, this is not for me. And so uh, <laughs> it, it lasted about a summer. And uh, 
But anyway, I ended up going back and trying it again the next year. And I said, well, I'm just going to do it for a little while. And that turned into like about 16 years. And uh, then I wound up working for uh, uh, a very large carnival in California. And uh, we were getting inspected by a safety inspector. And he was very impressed with how I took care of the equipment that I was in charge of and how I took care of the crew that I was in charge of. And, and, uh, I'd been in the carnival business for quite a few years and I told him, yeah, but I think I'm done with this. I'm going to have to go do something else. And he, goes, he says, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I said, the only thing that you learn out here that you can take somewhere else and make a living at is driving a truck, you know? And, and so he goes, you're going to take all the years you've been out here and just go be a truck driver. I go, well, that's, yeah, that's basically about the only skill that you get out here that you can take somewhere else and somebody give you. So anyway, he ended up hiring me, uh, hiring me or offering me a job, and I accepted it. And that kind of led into when Mr. Jackson first bought Neverland and started putting uh, rides in. The ride broker that was selling him rides, uh, well, actually, the, the ranch manager was smart enough to know, hey, we don't know anything about these things. So he asked the ride broker about somebody that can come in and help, you know, teach them, train them, inspect their rides, tell them how to take care of them, whatever. And he just happened to give them the name of the company that I worked for. So I ended up going out there a couple times a year and I just kind of developed a good relationship with the ranch manager and he didn't actually offer me a job, but I told him, I said, you know, I said, I don't know what goes on out here as far as, I mean, how busy you are or whatever. Cause I was only there as a consultant, you know, like two or three days uh, at a time, a couple times a year, I said, you know, I said, and I, I kind of got to know the guys that worked there and they were good guys and they knew how to, you know, I, through my help, they learned how to, I told them what tools to buy or, or, you know, get the ranch to buy for them. And I gave them manuals on all the rides and, and whatnot. But I told the ranch manager, I said, you know, I said, you really need to hire somebody that has a background in this business. I said, just from a liability standpoint, I said, if something happens out out here i said they're going to go after after michael because he's got deep pockets i said but i said you as the ranch manager i said you could be uh, in big trouble for negligent hiring i said and i wasn't trying to promote myself i was i offered to help him find somebody i said i'll help you find somebody that you know that's maybe been in the business a long time and kind of wants something where they can settle down or whatever and because uh, i did i didn't figure it was that busy there and uh, Anyway, one thing led to another, and I ended up filling those shoes, and and now I'm back out doing the independent inspecting work. But that's how I wound up at Neverland, is, is running running the amusement park. Well, that was a beautiful segue because <laughs> you answer, you just segued into the questions we were going to ask. So that's incredible oh. that you were on the safety <laughs> side of things and you yeah. were consulting, and then you ended up filling the position that you were basically advising them that they required. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So yeah, it, uh, it was, you know, it's kind of when I, when I teach, sometimes I teach classes at, at a seminar on amusement ride inspection and whatnot. And I, I give them a much shorter version of that, but I, you know, I, I tell them how I got started in the business and what it led to. And it's, you think about it one time I was, you know, making a, a few dollars a day, you know, sleeping underneath a ride <laughs> And then I, all of a sudden, here I am, you know, running the amusement park for uh, Michael Jackson. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty good story. What are your f- recollections of Michael Jackson from when you were growing up? Like, did you have any preconceived ideas before 
your first work for Neverland for Michael? I was raised in a family where I was never, uh, you know, I, I was taught not to be a judgmental type person, so I didn't really pay attention to what the tabloids. I do remember the very first time I ever heard Michael's music, I was, I'm going to say, probably a freshman in high school, and, and all the guys that I hung out with, you know, we kind of listened to, you know, Pink Floyd and Jimi Hendrix and The Doors and, and uh, you know the guys I hung out with, you just might have got you know, might have gotten in trouble for listening to the Jackson Five. So, <laughs> but I remember hearing them on the radio. That I was into music enough to know that there's some serious talent there, but it just wasn't my type of music. And it's funny when I tell the fans about how you know I, I didn't really, I, I don't want to say I didn't like Michael's music, but I didn't have any of his records. I didn't listen to any of his music because if I listened to the you know the that rock and roll from the you know the '60s and '70s and and uh, so I really didn't have any, you know, idea of what it was going to be like to go to work there, or what he was going to be like or anything. I was kind of excited just because of, you know, what a big celebrity was. And then after, actually, I was more impressed with what a beautiful amusement park this was more than I was. I'm going to work for Michael Jackson. I mean, it was just everything was done so first class and just it, I was I was really awestruck by it just from being in the amusement business pretty much my entire adult life. And that's what, that was my, I remember the first time I went there, I thought, this is cool. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't, I did, I wasn't thinking about here's a guy who's got an amusement park in his backyard. I was thinking about this is the nicest amusement park I have ever been in. Man, you're already painting such a beautiful picture in my mind, but I want you to walk us through your very first visit to Neverland Ranch. Well, my very first visit, I was really kind of focused because I was probably one of the only people that was allowed to bring a camera in. And the reason was that the reports that I do or did and still do now that I'm back to doing inspecting work, I take a picture of the ride, I take a picture of the safety sign, and then I take pictures of things that I want fixed. I also take pictures of positive things or, or if there's a bulletin. Uh, from a ride manufacturer, I take a picture to document, and, and my picture, my photos are, you know, dated, and and um, and I explained all that to them before I went out there and did my very first inspection. So they made an exception. They explained to me, you know, the confidentiality thing and no pictures and blah blah blah. And I said, now you got to make sure that you're just taking a picture of what you're just taking a picture of. And then back in those days, it was a film. So I had to get the film developed and they kept the negatives and then I got the prints and just did my report. But anyway, so the first time I was there, I was really just focused on doing my job, not, uh, you know, being, you know, a sightseeing fool and trying to go, you know, places I'm not supposed to go or whatever. So, so I, the first, now the second time I was a little, a little more relaxed and, the, and actually the, the ranch manager at the time, gave me a, a we, we rode around the ranch in his pickup and he showed me everything it was it's huge it's 2700 acres it's, it's a huge piece of property the area around the house and the amusement park of course is is uh, you know manicured like a golf course it's gorgeous all of, but the whole rest of the ranch is pretty much just like it's been for hundreds and hundreds of years you know it's just lots of sycamore and oak trees and rolling hills and there was i don't know four or five hundred head of cattle there and uh so it's kind of like, you know, the Wild West as far as the rest of the ranch goes. But the, the part that was developed, it was uh, it was it was absolutely awe-inspiring. I'm curious, Miguel, how did Neverland back then on your very first visits 
differ from its final version? Well, there really wasn't very many big changes. I mean, the zoo was, I mean, pretty much everything was there when I started working there. So I don't think, I don't think, I mean, other than the steam train, there was no big changes, you know, even, even inside the house for, for years and years and years, there was like no changes inside the house. Then a few, you know, a few pieces of furniture got changed to something, you know, gifts that Michael got from other people or whatever, but it really didn't change much. Just for listeners that aren't as familiar with the layout of the ranch, would would you be able to sort of describe where things were positioned as you come in through the gates? What can you expect to see? Where was everything laid out? First of all, when you come down, the road that you came down to get to Neverland was called Figueroa Mountain Road. And as you're driving down this road, <laughs> I remember people that I had come out there for business reasons when they finally got to the gate, they would go, I thought I was lost because the last few miles, you don't see anything. You're heading towards the top of this big giant mountain. And uh, so it's, it's out in the country. That's for sure. Then when you come in and there's nothing big or fancy about the front gates, there's no, you know, it doesn't say Neverland. It doesn't say anything about Michael. It's just a couple of gates and a security shack. You're in kind of a valley there and you come up over a hill into the next valley, which is where the, the residence and the amusement park. And anyway, when you come over the first hill, you kind of look off to your right. There's a, a small man-made lake and a, and a windy road that goes over the, over it. And that's the main residence is there. And then from there, you head north from the house about maybe uh, almost a half a mile. And there was the amusement park. And then you go down about another quarter of a mile and there was a zoo. And that pretty much was everything that that the people see when they come there for a trip to visit. I'm just curious about the train track itself. Um, What train was there when you sort of arrived and, and later what train was added and what part of the ranch did those tracks sort of travel? Okay, well, when you first come over that hill into the main valley where the residence and the amusement park and everything was, there's a set, you come, you'll come over a set of railroad tracks. Actually, if you see pictures online now of the uh, the actual Arch Neverland sign that have fiber optics in it, you'll see those pictures online. Well, right past that was the railroad tracks for the first train that was there. It was the small train. It's a, a C.P. Huntington replica made by Chance Rides out of Wichita, Kansas. And the track gauge is 24 inches, and uh, it's red. And it has three cars. That track was consisted of about two miles. There was a loop right as you go underneath that um, that big Neverland sign. There was a loop off to your left, and it went kind of winding around near the house, went through the amusement park in front of it, and then it went to behind the zoo and through another part of the zoo and made another loop and came back. And then when it came back, it went in front of the zoo and came down a little bit further and went in front of the amusement park and then it went back up towards the house. So it had, it had almost two miles of track, the small train. The other train was an honest to goodness live steam locomotive. It was cut into the side of the mountain. You had to walk up a couple of flights of stairs to this big building that looks like the entrance to Disneyland. And um, that's where the steam train Catherine was parked and it had about a mile of track and it basically kind of the same track layout. It wasn't 
it didn't have quite as many switches, but it had it had a loop at each end of the of the valley, and uh, that track was what they call narrow gauge, thirty six inches wide. Okay, so that's actually wow, that's actually the same gauge track, same narrow gauge track as Disneyland Resort, Magic Kingdom in Orlando, Disneyland Paris, Hong Kong Disneyland. That's the same gauge track. Do you um do you remember the Oh, I'm sure you do. The the wheel arrangement of the train, Catherine. I I do I do. When you said Disney, I was gonna I was gonna add to the story that um, Michael was uh, he was educated in everything. Whatever it was, he if he was interested in something, and he knew he understood train lingo. How you and when you talk about train configuration or wheel configuration, it's four four zero is what the wheel configuration is, and he and he said. He says, I want a steam train just like the Holiday, yep. which is the name of one of the steam trains at Disneyland. Yep. And that steam train is a 440. The, four, the first four is the four lead wheels, and then there's four drive wheels, and then there's nothing on the very back. So that's how you, that's how you talk about when you're talking to another train person, they, they, when, you, when you talk about what kind of locomotive it was, 440 you know, 466 or, you know, uh, 460. I mean, there's different, all kinds of different, but th- this was a based on the holiday, which is a train at Disneyland. It's a beautiful train, probably the nicest steam train I've ever seen. The wood, the cab was all teak wood and it was uh, beautiful brass everywhere that we kept polished very nicely. And all the pinstriping on the locomotive, on the lettering, on the water tender and all the pinstriping on the, on the two coaches, everything was all done in real Old leaf. Uh, I mean, it was a beautiful train. It had rope lighting and a nice sound system. Thank you so much for that detail. I'm a, a bit of a one of my other obsessions is uh, Disney parks, and uh, the the trains at those parks is always one of my favorite attractions <laughs> to ride. Um, I could sit on those trains and just circle the park for the whole day and be quite happy, <laughs> quite happy. Um, what was, do you know the, the ratio of what size carriages it was like what, because Disneyland obviously isn't a full size train. I think it's a five eighths scale. Do you know what scale Michael's was? No, I do not. I know that originally when we purchased it, it had four coaches and we only took delivery of two of them and each coach was, would hold about 60 people and they were just benches straight across, but I'm not wow. sure of the, the ratio. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. What were your responsibilities at the ranch? Like what was your sort of job description every day? Was it the same or very different? How was a day of ranch work for Big Al? That was never just another day at the office. That's for sure. But, uh, <laughs> And actually, that's a, that's a great question because I did want to clarify a little bit when you introduced me as the maintenance manager. We had a couple of different departments that had had to do with different types of maintenance, and, and I was really hired to run the amusement park. And because of my background in safety, I was involved in uh, safety for the employees, which consisted of several different departments, and for the guests. So... I kind of had uh, a few different hats, and then within a short period of time, I just sort of got into even wearing more hats. I, I kind of, when we had events out there, whether it was a group of kids from the inner city or a group of kids from the hospital or wherever, I, I kind of just worked with everybody because we weren't really staffed to do 
a free-for-all, like you go into a, reg a regular amusement park and you just go do whatever you want to do. We ha had to be kind of organized because in my department, the amusement park, I might have only had myself and three or four other employees. Well, we had 15 rides, so when we had a big group, we needed more people. So I, I kind of uh, made a schedule where, you know, okay, we're going to break the group up in, or into two smaller groups and these people are going to go here and these people are going to go here and then they're going to go here and they're going to, and anyway, it all worked out where at the, the last thing that we did before they got back on the bus and went back to the, to wherever they came from is we'd go to the amusement park. Well, by that time, everybody in the zoo was done. Everybody in the house was done. Everybody that was cooking was done. Everybody, you know, everybody was on the ranch was done so they could all come to the amusement park and help me run rides. So, so I wound up kind of, you know, helping coordinate the events and, and, uh, of course, when there, when we had private guests there, I was there most of the, you know most all the time. Whenever we had private guests, and apparently some of these private guests, well, I, I think all of them, Michael would wherever he was at, whether he was there at the ranch or you know on tour or in the studio, he would always check on when they got there, was everything okay? And I guess over the course of time, I must have developed a pretty good reputation because he seemed like he was more. Uh, you know, make sure that the big owls there for these guests or make sure big owls. So, so I, I, I guess I kind of got the understanding that what he really wanted for his guests was to have a five-star resort type experience. And I think because of all the years I traveled before and I did some international work and, and what I think I just kind of understood that what he wants from the ranch is for these people to have an experience like they never had before. And so I just, I kind of just expanded into doing several different things, but uh, my main purpose there was to run the amusement park. I'm, I'm curious about uh, where you were living at this time. Were you coming in every, every day to Neverland or just when you were called upon, were you living nearby locally? Well, most everybody that worked out there lived in a little town called Santa Maria, which was about 40 miles away, I guess. And uh, so that's where, when I, when I made the deal to actually go to work there, that's, I asked the ranch manager, I said, well, where does everybody live around here? And uh, he told me, so I, I ended up going there and finding an apartment, and that, was, that became my permanent address for the next 15 years. Got it, got it. Okay, and uh, did you guys have like set sort of shifts, like a roster that you'd come in on? Well, uh, most of the departments out there had a regular shift. The, uh, the people that were directly impacted, the guest activity, which would be obviously the housekeepers and the cooks and my department, the amusement park. We were kind of at the mercy of, you know, a lot of times we worked seven days a week. Sometimes we had to take weekdays off. We didn't always know, you know, sometimes things were planned a week or two or a month in advance. Sometimes it was, you know, a last minute call. And uh, so w when we knew we were going to have guests, we had a morning shift, an evening shift, but we didn't always necessarily have the same days off. And, and sometimes we wound up working, you know, seven days a week and whatnot. But like I said, it was a great place to go to work. I'd be going there today if, if I could. I'm not complaining about working. I worked I worked probably every, just about every weekend, the whole 15 years I was there. And I would say probably just about every single holiday the whole time I was there, including Christmas and New Year's, I never complained. I mean, it was, it was always uh, just another day in paradise. Oh, sounds beautiful. Did you ever get a, an opportunity to show, you know, like family or a significant other or anything like that, the ranch? Did Michael let you bring close people in sometimes? Yes. And how, how that worked was, again, during our, when we had these events, either the inner city kids or some, whatever, whatever the party was where we had large groups of people and we weren't really staffed to do that. I was allowed to bring in 
I had some friends that were in the fire department in Santa Maria, and I had family there, and uh, I was allowed to bring them out. We called them as volunteers. They were excited about getting to come out there, and they would come out and run. They would run a ride for a couple hours in the afternoon. So, and then after the event was over, all of my volunteers we got to we got to sit around, and if the projectionist was still there, we'd watch, you know, a Michael video or something, or we'd watch something on the jumbotron, and we'd ride rides, and we'd have pizza or whatever, and we'd hang out. We were just all glad to be there, go down to the arcade and play the games or whatever. But, but yeah, so I, I was. It was. Uh, it wasn't just I could invite anybody anytime I wanted, but. Uh, but I did get to, and I had a lot of great friends that I'm very thankful that they came out. They made a huge impact on, you know, people's lives with, uh, you know, how, when you have more people than you need to run everything, things just seem to run smoother. So, so it was, uh, most people don't know how important those volunteers were to me, but, but, uh, you know, they were, I was very glad that they, and they were, and they were all happy. I had one guy that was a, a paramedic in LA city and he'd drive up there the day before, and it, you know, it cost him money to come up there, and he would he'd come up, you know, four or five times a year, and and uh, you know help out. So, so I was, I was very thankful for that. And they were, and they, like I said, they were all thankful they got to come out there and be part of it. So. He does. I'll be 
Hey, this is really, really Brad Sundberg, studio engineer and technical director for Michael Jackson and host of In the Studio with MJ. You're listening to the MJ cast. You mentioned Disney a little bit earlier. Uh, did Michael ever talk to you one-on-one about his inspirations for the ranch? Well, I mean, it was, he did, I mean, we did have a lot, you know, we played Disney music and actually, if you look at some of the pictures, you'll see these, uh, not topiaries, but they're, they're, it's, I'm not sure what you call them, but anyway, they were, they were actually from the original Disney parade. Uh, There was an elephant and they just had twinkle lights on them. So there we had, I mean, it was a very Disney, you know, Disney had a big part in, in how he did it. And like I said, the steam train, he wanted the depot to look like Disney. And if you look at our steam train depot and look at the front entrance of Disney, you'd swear that they were, you know, twins. Um, I'm curious uh, what facilities were there for you on property for the trains, like workshops and, and things like that? Cause they're both very different train systems as well. Right. Well, I never, I never got the, uh, steam train barn that i wanted we built one that was basically built over the existing track so at least it you know kept it out of the weather and i had there was a a side track that went over a pit if i needed to pull over a pit for anything so uh and then the small train had a similar barn in the back where uh it had it had a it was a three stall barn where you could put the two coaches in one and then the train and the tender in another one and that one had a pit on it so so that we we had uh you know an enclosed barn for for both trains that they could be parked in at night. Big Al, as much as Neverland was a place for Michael to have uh, privacy, peace and quiet away from the industry and later a family home, it was also a place very focused on giving a unique experience to those that needed it most, like inner city, uh, underprivileged, ill children, were invited by Michael to visit. Al, how often did Michael open his ranch to these special visitors? Well, we tried to do an event basically once a week. Now, in that part of California, the wintertime, we can get a lot of rain. So sometimes we would, uh, most of the year the weather was nicer. So we would try to do maybe two a week because in the wintertime it was not a good idea to schedule something too far in advance because you just never knew what the weather was going to be like. And Michael didn't want people to look forward, you know, because these groups would start, they would start the process of getting invited out there and then they would, and it might be a group that had hundreds or hundreds or thousands of kids, I don't know. And they narrow them down to, you know, a certain number of kids that they want to bring up there. And then they're all looking forward to it. And then all of a sudden they get at the last minute, they get, canceled because of rain and some of these kids you're you know they've they're you know the inner city kids dealing with life-threatening illnesses have been dealing with disappointment all their life and we didn't want to add one more to them so when the, when the weather was good we would try to do at least a couple of them a week and and they'd be the groups would be around 100 to 200 kids we'd try to get them to get up there you know early mid-morning and like i said we had this kind of a schedule going of how everything we had we had it down to a science and it moved very smoothly, and they, they'd end up usually staying until you know four or five in the afternoon. And we'd give them some, you know, souvenir bags with some Neverland stuff, and put them back on the bus and head them back home. That that is just phenomenal for me to hear. Like, I mean, Michael was, as we know, one of the the biggest recording artists in the world. Would always be in the studio on tour. 
uh, award shows, performances, you name it. And he somehow managed to find the time to run this full-scale operation of one to two events a week of hundreds of kids coming out. That's that in itself is is uh, would seem to me to be a full time job. Oh yeah, well, and we had a huge staff out there. I mean, you're talking about you know 100 full time employees, you mm. know? and and uh, I mean that was like I said, my department, Ally, Ally had you know three or four, sometimes five people, but <clears throat> we had 2,700 acres. We had a zoo. We had an amusement park. We had a huge house. We had a fire department. We had a security department. All these trees that needed in our, in our in our landscaping, there was basically subcategories. You know, there was people that basically all they really took care of was the yards, the grass. There was a whole department that just took care of the flowers because if you see pictures out there, the flower beds were, I mean, it was there was a, a, a full crew that took care of just the flower. There was a crew that just took care of the trees. There was a, a crew that just took care of irrigation. I mean, it was a, it was it was like a city out there. And these groups on top of it and having to cater to all those people. I mean, when I say cater, I mean, we, we would do a big Santa Maria style barbecue lunch. And of course, occasionally we would get certain meal requests and we'd have, you know, vegetarian stuff and, and whatnot. But it was it was a big it was a big undertaking to, to do one of these groups. Yeah. And this is something I don't I don't think all fans quite understand. And it's sort of just dawning on me now. It's it, it doesn't seem like Michael. Or and you guys got the occasional group out. It's sounding like a full-scale charity operation. We had a few extremely large events. I mean, we're talking a couple thousand people that was really uh, took its toll on us. As far as at the end of the day, we were glad that day was over. But I mean, it made a lot of people, it made a lot of people happy. You know? And we did a couple of private parties for you know entertainers and celebrities and whatnot. That was. Uh, those were always fun, but I mean, it was the most rewarding thing, obviously for me was, was the kids in the hospital to see, because they would, they would usually they would bring, you know, we tell them or whoever organized the event would say, you can, you know, you can bring some friends, you know, whatever. And they would always bring their family because kids are in the hospital. Uh, and I know this because I took care of a kid with cystic fibrosis for a while. Their friends are other kids with cystic fibrosis or their family. Cause that's who they're around all the time. Cause they're, they're either home or they're in the hospital, you know, so, so, so we would let them bring their mom and dad, brother, sister, whoever they wanted. And we would get these letters. I mean, letters and letters, three ring binders full of letters of, of, from the families of how important that day was. It was the most important day of their life. It's a, it's a day. There's a family. I, I don't remember their names, but they're actually from Australia. The kid came over with a cancer group and he was missing a leg. And he was about, I don't know, 10 years old. I could tell that he was uh, a train enthusiast. I mean, he was asking me questions about the train. And when we would have a group like that, if there was somebody that showed interest in a train, I would invite them up to, to what's called a cab ride, where I, there was a bench seat at the front of the tender, between the tender and, the, and where the engineer uh, sits. And I had a certificate. I think I might have sent you guys a picture of it. But there's a certificate from Neverland Railroad, and I had them all numbered you know, one through a hundred or whatever. Obviously number one went to Michael, you know, but anyway, so this kid rode up there and then during the course of the day when he's doing something else, I went and printed out the certificate and it had Michael's signature on it, had my signature on it. And a little thing about honor, uh, monitor, uh, honorary engineer for, you know, Neverland railroad. And, uh, oh. <clears throat> and, and this kid passed away a few years later 
And his, and his family stayed in touch with me for years after that. I mean, years and years and years. And they, and they would say that this is that, that day there is a memory that they're going to have the rest of their life. So the impact it had on people's lives was just uh, unbelievable. And you earlier you were asking about, you know, Michael's inspiration for it. I remember, and sometimes I have a hard time telling this story because it gets, I get a little emotional, but well, there's big oak trees and, and sycamore trees all over the place, but there's one in the middle of the park and one day, Michael and I were sitting at a picnic table under, and this didn't happen very often where it was just nobody was there except for him and me, and we would have these little conversations, but we actually sat there and watched the entire movie Hook on the Jumbotron, and, uh, which that's, that's a whole other story. <laughs> but, but anyway, the whole time we're talking about Neverland, and I could tell in, in, his, in his eyes and his voice how important Neverland was to him, and not for him and his family and his friends, but for days like what I just described about this kid from from Australia or, or, or any of these inner city kids, that's what he built that place for. And that's what, uh, that's what it was all about. I mean, he enjoyed it and he enjoyed it having his friends come there and he enjoyed it once he had kids, his kids, you know, but it was really built to, to touch people's lives in a, in a positive way that would last them forever. Wow. That was so brilliantly told that story. Thank you. Thank you very much, Big Al. That's mm-hmm. very special. Speaking about guests with special needs, obviously you would have had a lot of children come through with with those kind of scenarios. Did you guys need to take into account the accessibility of rides and buildings? Yeah, we did. We actually had to build because uh, obviously it's a it's a it's a residence, and it was designed back in the seventies, and and ADA stuff wasn't uh, you know a big item back then, and only so much you can do. But we basically built wheelchair ramps. For every place that we had stairs, we built wheelchair ramps. And, and as long as the uh, organizing people that were coming up there would let us know ahead of time that they're going to be wheelchairs, then we, we would go get all these stuff out of the storage building and put them every place that we had to put them. So we tried to, we tried to make everything as accessible as we possibly could. Carriages on rides, were there any special um, carriages for people in uh, wheelchairs or limited mobility or needed a harness or anything like that? I mean, somebody like Disney might be able to afford to do that because they do build some of their own rides, but we couldn't do that without getting a ride manufacturer. We don't, we didn't have a shop facility or anything there to, to do anything like that. Now, the carousel did have what they're called, uh, they're called chariots. They're like a couple of bench seats and then they had actually the seats flipped up and there was wheelchair locks mounted to the floor. So that ride came from the manufacturer designed that way, but everything else out there, well, I take that back. Our steam train also had a set of benches on each car that uh, were open and they had wheelchair locks in them. So we did have a couple of rides, but um, that's that's it, Just just a couple. Beautiful, beautiful. You mentioned a little bit before Neverland also had a number of high-profile visitors over its many years. What were some of the special considerations for these famous guests and their own experience of Neverland Valley Ranch? There really wasn't, uh, because we were so secluded out there and we really didn't have do anything really out of the ordinary other than if, if it leaked out. Like a lot of times if we had somebody a VIP high profile person coming out there. A lot of times our security clearance would come to the ranch and say, you're going to have VIP guests and it wouldn't have names. <laughs> so, and that just eliminated, you know, the word getting out by somebody that saw one of these security clearances. So as a general rule, we really didn't have to do much of anything unless it was 
something that got the word got, you know, like when Elizabeth Taylor had her wedding there, obviously that got leaked into the media and that was a disaster as far as, you know, from a security standpoint, you know, a couple of times we had ex-presidents show up and it really didn't get leaked out, but then the secret service would come in and uh, which actually that one day I was in my office and I heard somebody come in. It was, there was we had no guests that day. And uh, so I was in there, I don't know, typing some notes or whatever. I heard somebody come in. I really didn't pay any attention at all. <laughs> all of a sudden I turned around and here's a, here's a guy in a suit. And uh, I could tell that he had a gun underneath his suit. He says, I, I, he pulls a badge out. I'm so, so from the secret service. I'm like, what the heck did I do? <laughs> he goes, are you big Al? And I'm thinking, Oh my God, <laughs> I did do something. And, uh, I said, yeah. And he goes, um, do you have, uh, do you have all the radio frequencies? I go, Oh man. yeah. I have a friend that's a Motorola dealer anyway. So I took care of the, all the radios there. And, and, uh, I said, yeah, I do have the radio frequencies. He goes, well, I need a copy. So that, that was all there was, but it, it was, uh, it was kind of a tense moment there for a second. I thought I was going to be handcuffed for some reason. <laughs> wow. But yeah, we, we had a few. I mean, you know, we had, when we did that one big charity event, I don't remember. It was a substantial dollar amount in the thousands for a pair of tickets. But the money was all going to, I can't remember. I know one of them was Make-A-Wish, and one of them was um, an artist that had done some work for Michael that had a, had a charity that raised money for school uh art programs and there was another one that was a musical thing that i think carlos santana had something to do with anyway those three charities this all this money and we had a you know we had a couple thousand people there and it was a lot of celebrities and it was of course publicized it was on that ryan seacrest back when he was at whatever that radio station was so that was a kind of a big deal we hired we actually hired uh, some outside security actually we hired i think we hired a bunch of uh one of the people that worked at the ranch, there was a connection. I don't remember the whole connection, but we actually hired some uh, some uh, ex Navy SEALs were part of that thing. It was a, it was quite an event. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm I have to say I am curious about the ex presidents that the pr uh, previous presidents that visited. I'm going to guess maybe the Clintons and maybe Jimmy Carter, and I. I think I understand, was President Reagan, he had his own ranch in the same area of California, maybe President Reagan? Well, you got, yeah, the Clintons, I don't recall them ever coming there. I'm not saying they didn't, but I don't think they ever did. But yeah, the, okay. the, actually the, the uh, Secret Service that approached me, that was one, that was a, a, a advanced person for the for Carter, and uh, Reagan was one of them. Yeah. Oh, wow. Excellent. It was a good guess then. <laughs> it, it really sounds... <laughs> like a pretty busy place. So how much downtime did Neverland uh, Ranch employees have? Well, it's kind of funny when you say that because that's what I thought when I, when I made the deal to go to work there. I'm thinking, how boring is this going to be? <laughs> <laughs> and and I, again, I wasn't looking at like, I get to hang out with you know Michael Jackson because I figure I'm an employee. I don't know if I'm ever even going to see him. I was just thinking... At that time, I didn't have a clue as to what all went on there, and I just was thinking, "Here's this guy that's got, you know, a lot of money, and he has an amusement park in his backyard." I had no idea about the groups that came in there and what all went on. I just thought we were sitting around waiting for Michael to come home, and when he was on tour for 18 months, we were going to have a lot of time to do whatever we wanted to do. You know, well, it didn't turn out that way. 
obviously. And then I, then I learned about all these. And I, I was glad. I mean, I was glad that we were staying busy. And then, of course, when we got the steam train, it almost it almost became too busy. I don't want to say too busy, but the steam train is a very high-maintenance uh, item. I really wish I could have had, you know, another person like me. It just would, you know, I mean, we, we got, we, we operated everything just fine. There's only two of us actually that were really trained on the steam train. So it was kind of important to us to, you know, have some kind of a knowledge of when we were going to have guests and there, and the people down in LA that were actually the people organizing all this stuff, you know, they were, they were pretty good. I, I actually ended up developing a pretty good relationship with some of those people down there and they would say, okay, I, I might call up and say, hey, I'm thinking about taking a vacation here. Oh, no, you don't want to do that. <laughs> so it was uh, – we really didn't have much downtime because if you had a few days off, you really had – there was a lot of stuff to clean and maintain. You could almost count on something – almost something happening every weekend. So you'd spend uh, – I mean, we had days off. Don't get, don't get me wrong. It's not like we never had days off. But we did end up working a lot of overtime and – Sometimes we didn't have days off, and uh, one time in particular, when I when I said there were only two of us who could operate the steam train, we, we could pretty much, without any knowledge or top secret information from LA, we kind of could always figure we we're going to be busy around Christmas. You know, Michael would usually come home, take some time off from whatever he was doing, friends and family up there, so we could always kind of count on Christmas being busy. Well, one of Christmas, I actually got a phone call and said, if you or any of your you know people staff want to make plans for Christmas, you can go ahead. Michael's going to be, I think, you know, he's going to be in New York working on an album or something. So the only person that really wanted to take a vacation was the only other person that could run the steam train. <laughs> so, And he had family down in Mexico, so he takes off to go to Mexico. I think the next day, or maybe even the day that he took off, you know, I don't know, I get a call, it's been a change of plans. <laughs> It's going to be the biggest Christmas ever. So oh, my God. God. Great. <laughs> hmm. So there was a – for anybody that's ever been to the zoo or, or the Neverland, you might might recall down in the zoo there was a – we called it the, the ranch house. It was like an – it was there before the big main house was built back in the 70s, and it was the ranch hands house. And it was, I don't know, three-bedroom. was furnished, had satellite TV, and, but nobody ever used it. So when I found out that Michael was going to be home for, you know, probably three weeks or more, I just packed a suitcase and moved in because the steam train, now I'm the, I'm the only person that can operate the steam train. You have to start it at seven o'clock in the morning. And if, if you close the amusement park at 10, which was normal, but not guaranteed when Michael was there, it was still like another, you know, half hour to an hour to shut the steam train down. You, know, you just don't turn it off and walk away from it. So, so I knew I was going to be out there long hours. Plus, on top of that, it's you know 40, 45 minute drive home. So I just said it's a, it's a waste of time for me to drive back and forth. You know, I'm only going to be sleeping for about three hours, and so I wound up staying there the whole time, which is which leads into another story. Christmas Eve, it's about eleven thirty at night. I put the steam train away, and I think I'd taken a shower and was watching a little TV. I was in my sweats, and the phone rings. And now I'm thinking the only people that know I'm there or. The, at the ranch house, staying there, it's is uh, the fire department and security. Now I know that there's people on property, including Michael, and there was a game in the arcade that actually required one of us to be there. It was kind of a flight simulator type ride, and it required somebody to be at the controls in case something happened to shut it off. So when the phone rang, 
I answered it with a little bit of an attitude because I'm thinking somebody wants to ride that ride in the arcade and I got to go back down there. I answered the phone. What? <laughs> thinking, of course, it was going to be somebody from security and it was Michael. Ooh, okay. And he goes, and he, and he, he, uh, he goes, Big Al. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> but he, he was on a mission. He said, uh, he says, Big Al, he says, now this is 1130 on Christmas Eve. He goes, Big Al, he says, can you get a Santa Claus suit for tomorrow morning? <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, where could I get a Santa Claus suit this late at night on Christmas Eve? I actually said something that he actually chuckled at because they knew I didn't mean I didn't mean it in a mean way. But I said, you know what? Not even Michael Jackson could get a Santa Claus suit at eleven thirty at night on Christmas Eve. <laughs> and he, he, did, he, he did chuckle a little. After when I mean when the words were coming out of my mouth, I thought that wasn't the right thing to say, but it was true. Although, you know, I look back on when I tell that story now, I think, you know, if I would have called the right person down in L.A., it might have happened. I don't know. But <laughs> anyway, that Christmas went very well. It was the biggest Christmas ever. Michael was very happy. And, and I, when it was over, I went home and took a couple of days off and did my laundry and life was good. Fast forward about six months, and I think I sent this picture to you. There's a, there's a picture of me. You can't tell it's me, but I'm sitting on top of an elephant in a Santa Claus suit. Oh, yeah, I remember that picture, and I'm so <laughs> glad we're getting this story. <laughs> okay, well, you'll have, to, you'll have to include that on your, on your website there so people can, can see it. So, sure thing. Uh, we will. So, so this person down in L.A. The, that's uh, way up there on the, on the ladder calls, and she says, uh, uh, and, and usually when she calls, it's, you know, there's something special, an event, or guest coming or whatever, and she's just letting me know. Or whatever. But anyway, she goes, um, What's your hat size? Which, and now, of course, you're going to know where this is going. But I was clueless. I was like, "What's your pants size? What's your inseam? What's your boot? What's?" I mean, she was asking me all these questions. And after about four questions, I went, "I went, wait a minute, what is going on? Am I going to a wedding or what? You know, you get me a fit of me for a tux?" And, and uh, she goes, "No." She goes, "She goes, Michael Bush." And of course, I don't have to explain to you who Michael Bush is. Usually, when I tell a story, I have to tell people who he is. But I said, "I said," he, she says, "Michael Bush." is making you a Santa Claus suit. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that Santa Claus, you see, if you can zoom in on that picture, you probably can't get all the detail, but it is quite the fancy Santa Claus suit, let me tell you. So that's how I got, that's how I wound up with that Santa Claus. And you played Santa at some point because you've got yeah, the pictures I, I, of you I got to use, Actually, I think there's another picture in there. I don't know if you can tell it. It's a long shot from the small train. And if you look on the bench there, I'm, I got my back to the camera, but I'm sitting on this bench in my Santa Claus suit and my oldest boy, Christopher is there. He's dressed in a, in, in black dress pants and a white uh, shirt and tie. And we're greeting a train load of people. This is the one time I think that the media, some of the media anyway, including Geraldo, I got to meet Geraldo that day, but he, he was, uh, I was in a Santa Claus suit. So I'm sure he doesn't remember who I am other than Santa Claus, but we were doing a kind of a media thing there. And, and there was, there was a group of kids there too, but anyway, I, I had my, bag full of uh, Christmas candy and I was handing out candy to people when they got off the small train, and, which there's, there's another sh short story right there. So a couple of days later, the, one of the media that was allowed to come out, there was the, the local newspaper from Santa Maria, which was you know the, the nearest town. Uh, and the next day I get the newspaper and that picture of me in my Santa Claus suit sitting on that bench is on the front page and it's like a quarter page size picture. 
And then down in the very bottom right-hand corner, about the size of a postage stamp, there was a picture of Michael. <laughs> so oh, so wow. I, couldn't, I couldn't wait to take that picture and show it to Michael. Michael said, look, <laughs> I got first billing over Michael Jackson. <laughs> I was just, oh, I was so, I was so amazed. I was, <laughs> that was pretty funny. Well, I guess if That's there great. was any, any name to trump Michael Jackson, bigger, <laughs> it would be Santa Claus. It'd be sad, of course. That's right. <laughs> Did Michael ever celebrate any other holidays at Neverland, like Fourth of July or Halloween, that you're aware of? Well, he absolutely loved fireworks. So, of course, now we're in the middle of nothing but sycamore and oak trees, <laughs> and depending on how much <laughs> rain we've had, which we don't have any rain that time of year, fireworks are not a good idea. And this was another uh, through our fire department. At the ranch, I met the captain of the fire department in Lompoc, which was about a 30-mile drive from the ranch, something like that. And they, the fire department there always did, I don't know if they still do, but they always did a big 4th of July fireworks thing at the high school football stadium. And uh, so we arranged to go over there with Michael and some of his guests in the van and nobody was going to know we were coming except for this this captain, and we and we absolutely trusted this guy. He says, he goes, I got to tell. There's a sheriff at the back gate, and I want you to come in the back gate. He says, none of my guys will know, and nobody but that sheriff, and I trust him. Nobody's going to know you're coming except for me and that sheriff, and you'll be good to go. Okay. So we tell Michael, if you want to go and see a real fireworks show, I can take you there, and you'll be sitting away from the crowd, and and you know. So we get there, and uh, <laughs> I can't believe it. Some of the stuff that happened, and I just, I, I just, I cherish, I cherish, I cherish these memories. And, and like I said, like I always, I always have to have a disclaimer. I said some of these stories I tell, I, I, I've done pretty good so far, and I haven't got too emotional or anything. But we we get there, and the stadium lights are all on, and so Michael's getting comfortable, and the, and the fire captain says. That's my motor home over there. Nobody's in it if he wants to go there and hang out or whatever. And of course, he wanted to go in there and check it out. And he's going through all the drawers and whatnot. And anyway, so now the fire, the lights go down, the fireworks start, and everybody's oohing and on. And Michael decides he's going to walk over. He wants to walk over close to where the, and he's got, I don't know, six or eight people with him. There's friends of his. And he wants to walk over closer to where everybody else is at. And I'm like, I'm like, no, you can't walk over. Now, I, I, I left out an important part here. He's actually, on the way over there, because he was assuming he was going to be in a big crowd, they, the, this, this whole group of people got made up to look kind of like, uh, I don't know, Arab sheiks or something. <laughs> I don't know what, oh but it was like, oh, they're not going to, they're not going to stand out in, in Lombok, California, are they? So he, so he walks over there. Now he stops before he gets beyond the area that's caution taped off. We're actually inside a restricted area. And he stops before he gets to the unrestricted area, and they all lay down there watching the fireworks. So I'm like, well, that's cool. That's cool. So I'm standing behind him, like I'm, I'm the only one there, you know, with him. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm thinking, I'm just like, I hope nothing bad happens here because I don't know if I can handle this. So now the the fireworks stop, and I can see that those stadium lights when they first come on, they're real dim, and they have to, they're, I think it's mercury vapor, or whatever it takes. So I'm trying to get Michael to get up and get back over away from this crowd, and. Uh, so finally, I mean, right as the lights come on full blast, he finally gets it. You know, he's, he's perfect on that timing thing. It's, so we're now we're walking back, and there's two policemen that don't know who we are or what we're doing walking towards us about halfway between us 
and the fire department's little command post thing. And I'm wearing, I'm actually wearing a firefighter's um, turnout jacket, and I'm not dressed like a like a sheik. So the cops approach me and go, uh, "Young, what are you doing?" And I'm like, <laughs> I'm stunned for a minute. I don't know exactly what to say. The first words that I want to come out of my mouth, I'm I'm having a hard time getting out of my mouth because I think this cop's gonna, you know, arrest me or something. I go, finally, I just said it. I go, uh, "This is Michael Jackson." <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and the cop looked at him and he, I, I think he looked at his eyes and Michael's got those eyes that I don't care how disguised he is. I mean, the guy, the cop looked at him and went, okay, <laughs> he, let us, he let us go. So, uh, anyway, so we get back, we get, we get back over there and, and now there's a band playing during this halftime. They're going to do another fireworks display, but they're going to, there's a band up there. It's going to play for like 15 or 20 minutes. We're standing around this pickup truck where Michael's standing. The, the pickups kind of, obstructed his view of the stage. I'm standing at the back of the truck and, and I can see over the, over the right rear fender, I can see the stage and Michael's listening to the music and I'm and he, I can, you know, he's kind of had his head going. He's being, I'm like, man, he, this guy can't listen to music anywhere without getting into it. You know, <laughs> he's, and it was, I don't know what kind of music you're playing, but he was getting into it. And he goes, he goes, uh, he goes, you hear that? Right. And he's talking to me. He's like, you hear that? And I go, yeah. And he goes, that's pre-recorded. And then, and I, again, I thought to myself, why am I going to say what I'm, what the words that I want to come out of my mouth to Michael Jackson? I go, I go, no, it's not. <laughs> I go, it's a live band. I know he says, he says that part right there. That's right. <laughs> I'm thinking, why am I arguing with Michael Jackson about whether it's live? I even, even though I can see this live band, I know that whatever I'm going to say is wrong because this guy probably knows more about music than, than I do. I'm sure of that. So then he, but he was nice about it. He, he, you know, I'm sure he thought to my, he had thought to himself, that big Alisher is a dummy when it comes to music. But he goes, uh, he's explaining to me, he goes, no, he says, that's live music. But this, he it was this part right here. He goes, that's, you know, that's so, so I got a little lesson. I got lessons there. But anyway, that's, that's kind of a long story about fireworks. There comes a time when we heed a certain call. When the world must come together as one There are people dying Oh, when it's time to lend a hand to life The greatest gift of all Oh, we can go on Pretending day by day That someone, somewhere
Hi, this is Michael Prince, studio engineer and producer with Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. We know of really very few staff who worked at Neverland. We we know of yourself, uh, Brad Sundberg, Rob Swinson, who worked for the ride manufacturer. Uh, who did you work with closely and what other sort of departments were there that you had to coordinate with? You mentioned just before there was their uh, Neverland Fire Department. Well, yeah, I, I worked with I worked very closely with them mainly because of my background in safety. And uh, when I first went to work there, there were some things out there like they didn't have an automatic defibrillator. And so I helped them get some equipment. I don't know if just hearing it coming from me, uh, the guy that's supposed to be the safety expert, I don't know. But but uh, you guys don't have a defibrillator? No. I said, well, you guys should have a defibrillator. I mean, we're you know, it's 15 minutes response time for the nearest actual ambulance. I think that was still a volunteer. I go, we're out in the boonies here. We need to have these big events. And actually, during the events, I started getting them to where they actually brought in a standby ambulance from an ambulance company in Santa Maria. I said, you can't have a couple hundred people out here. I said, you, this is a private residence. It's a private party. And you can go, you can go with all that stuff all you want. But if something happens to somebody out here, you still have an implied duty to supply, you know, a certain amount of you know safety, even though it's a private party at somebody's house. It wasn't like right after that, right after we started doing that. It was probably a year after that. We actually did have a guy that went into anaphylactic shock and from some allergic reaction to something. And uh, and if we hadn't had an ambulance there, it would have ended bad, I think. I mean, they immediately started working him up and got him in there and got him transported, and he was he was okay. But had that ambulance not been there, I don't know if it would have turned out that way. So so I kind of worked with the fire department on a lot of safety-related stuff and, and – uh, training and actually we brought in um because uh, i before i started working there i was doing a similar thing ride inspections and at big fairs uh actually this week i'm at the orange county fair in costa mesa california we worked with local fire departments at some of these fairs that we do training them how to evacuate people from rides and what to tie off and what not to tie off and how the different uh, evacuation procedures work on different rides so they don't just come in and start cutting things up and not knowing what's going to happen next. So so we actually invited, Solvang was the nearest town. We invited them to come out, and I, and I got a couple of uh, fog machines, and we filled the train depot up with fog so thick you couldn't see, and then we had somebody in there on the ground, and, and we had the, we called it, we actually, th- through Santa Barbara County, we got permission to, to run it like a real fire over the dispatch and everything, and uh, I mean, everybody was aware that it was a, a drill, but we got to do it like it was a real thing. And that was, a, that was another thing of it. And I, and I enjoyed that, you know, and the fire department from Solvang, it was kind of nice to have them come out and get familiar with the ranch. And of course, all the fire guys wanted to stick around and ride rides afterwards, but the battalion chief said, no, we have, <laughs> we have to, we have to get back to the fire. Station. We have a planner, but it was kind of cool because we, they brought in the big snorkel truck and they shot water over everything like it was on fire. And I mean, they had hoses out everywhere and hooked up to our fire system, our, our fire hydrant system. And, so that was just another another fun day at Neverland. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. And I'm kind of curious what Michael was like as as a boss. Uh, was there any times where he had to give you uh, feedback or say that he wanted something to be better? What was it like interacting with him in, in that way? He treated me very well. And when he was around, there was, there was an energy that that guy put off that was just like no other. And he, he never... He never, well, with me, I, I, I can't speak for anybody else out there, but with for me, he never was like, 
really mad about something, but you could tell you could tell when he was disappointed about something. And you, and I think everybody out there just really wanted to do a good job for him. So every once in a while, there would be something in the park. You know, we weren't. You know, th- there was all these trees and everything. We had birds everywhere. You couldn't keep up with the bird poop on the fence. So it was that was kind of a thing, you know. And then the the Disney um, Disney on Parade stuff. They're outside 365 days a year at Neverland, whereas at Disneyland, they're outside for, you know, 45 minutes and they're inside a building. So these lights would, the it was, because they're just Christmas twinkle lights. And I'm sure everything's done now with fiber optics or LEDs and the technology, of course, is so much nicer now. But, you know, if they were red or blue or whatever, the, the sun would fade them. So, I mean, he would come in, but he was always very nice about it. He says, he says can you have them, you know, change those lights out and blah, 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 this and that. I want that hill over there. I want that to have grass on it or, you know, I mean, he, he was always very nice about it. And I was glad that he felt comfortable coming to me. And, and I, but then the pressure was on me to make sure that the people I have to take this through, through understand that Mr. Jackson wants this. So, so when he comes back and it's not here and he asked me why, I guarantee you, I'm going to tell him who I told to get it done. I'm not, I'm not jumping under the bus for anybody else. I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus that doesn't deserve to be thrown on the bus, but I'm just telling you, he asked for this. Now you need to take that. There, you know, I'm not usually speaking to the ranch manager. And I said, so you need to take that to the accountants and see what they say. And I'm, of course, anything that, costs, anything that costs money, they don't want to hear about. He was, he was always very nice with me about, you know, what, he, what things he wanted done. And I, and like I said, I was glad that he, he felt comfortable coming to me and asking me. And, but again, there was some pressure there to, you know, I have to take this to somebody else and hope they continue on down to the, you know, the, the people down there with the money and see what happens. And sometimes when he would, you know, he was leaving to go on tour, a lot of times they would always use that as, a, yeah, well, we'll worry about that later. Well, then, you know, how that goes later catches up with you before you know it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And speaking of touring uh, and Michael being away and working, how often would you actually get to see him physically at the ranch? Was it Was it frequent or...? The first several years, because it was, I, I think I went to work there right about the um, Dangerous Tour. So he was gone there a lot, and then he's, you know, he's gone in the studio. But I would say, I would say the first several years, he would show up at the ranch, you know, sometimes just for a weekend or a week, you know, several times a year. Obviously, when he was on tour, he didn't, but usually, you know, whenever the tour took a break, he would come and spend at least a week there. Towards the end, when he wasn't touring or working on working on any records, you know, he was there quite a quite a bit more often then. Big Al, did Michael talk about future plans for Neverland Ranch and perhaps long term plans if he had any for Neverland? Well, he he never really talked about long term plans. I mean, he you know he was like a, um, from that conversation I had with him underneath that big tree it was such a passion of his to have that and what we did for all those kids. His idea was that for that to last forever, you know, past him and I, that, I mean, that was, I really felt that he wanted that thing to be there forever for that reason. Some specific stuff he did talk about, and you know, like this, because it involves a steam train. He really wanted the steam train to go into the next Valley, which was going to be difficult. We were going to have to, I mean, I didn't cover every square inch of that ranch, I don't know how we could have got back there and back without digging a tunnel or something, but I, I was kind of excited about it at the time because, you know, he wanted, he goes, I wanted to wear like, if I have, you know, VIPs here and I want to take like a, you know, a, like a 30 or 45 minute or hour long train ride to go in the next Valley and have dinner on, have a palace coach. And all. So I was kind of 
you know, excited. And I got to back up in the very beginning. There's another picture I sent you of Michael and I standing, I think I said to you, standing in front of the small train. And you probably couldn't recognize, you recognize Michael, obviously, but I was dressed, I had a, a conductor's hat, a, a black vest and a white shirt. And this was before the steam train got there. And this was actually a, a photo shoot for Life magazine. And I went, uh, the security called me and said, they're, they're done shooting in the backyard. And they want to go down to the amusement park. And they, he wants you to bring the train. So I bring the train up there. They all come running over. And I hadn't seen Michael yet that day. And he's, he, always, he was always very, you know, hey, big Al, how you doing? And I always, every time I saw him, I always said, just another day. When he would greet me, I would say, just another day in paradise. And the photographer told the writer to write that down. And actually, if you ever get that magazine, you'll see the very first paragraph. That picture's not in there, but I was quoted. The photographer says, stand there and just act like you're talking. I want to take a picture. So I'm standing there looking at Michael. I'm thinking, gee, I hope he has something he wants to talk about. I don't know what to say. And he goes, <laughs> uh, Big Al. So, and he immediately, he immediately starts talking to me like nobody else is around. He goes, he goes Big Al, we're going to get a steam train. I'm thinking, oh, man, you do not want a steam train. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're talking. Now, I know that he's done his homework, and I know he knows what, you know, he knows about trains, but I don't think he knows that a steam train is basically a grenade the size of a Volkswagen that involves a lot of work, and uh, which I was more than happy to do it, but I just don't think he understood how much, you know, the, there's a, you need to have really good water. There's just a lot to a steam train. I mean, a lot. So anyway, that was uh, that was my first uh, finding out that we're getting a steam frame. When we had that little <laughs> picture, there, picture there. But we never we never did get the train the train track going in the back valley. But that was that was one of his you know things that he wanted to do. And other than that, as far as the ranch itself, I think he just wanted it to continue doing what it was doing until the end of time. Maybe this will be an odd question for you, Big Al, because I guess essentially it was your workplace, but as special as Neverland was, did you have a favorite time of day at Neverland and did you have a favorite place on the ranch? I would say, uh, and this goes back to me eating my words about you don't want a steam train because I, I actually eventually fell in love with that steam train and it's, I think of it as one of my children. But at nighttime, Michael liked to see the uh, trains, see or hear or both, some movement out of them. So, if nothing was going on, if it was just Michael and a few guests and they were in the house and we knew they were basically done, we, we kept everything, all the lights lit up and the park, the amusement park anyway, until 10 o'clock. I would go down and I would take the small train for, there's some switches we could throw where we didn't have to go the entire two miles. But just so, and it, it was all lit up with rope lights and it had a whistle. So I'd, I'd go down there and, and you could, if you're sitting just about anywhere in the house, you could look out the back and, and at some point you could see the small train going down. So I would take it for a little quick ride, and then I would go up to the steam train and, and make sure that it was, uh, you know, if it wasn't started, I'd start it up and make sure. I, I had I, I kept it running most, not didn't leave it running all the time, but I'd go check on it every once in a while and wouldn't let it get too cooled off in case, you know, somebody wanted to go for a ride. But anyway, so I, I didn't, I'd go back and forth between the two trains, or, or somebody in the park would go back and forth and so Michael could see it moving. And, and the steam train, you couldn't really see it from the house but that whistle, it would it would echo through that canyon. I'm thinking the people for miles and miles around know that the guy was taking the steam train out. <laughs> this whistle was it was just it would echo through this through this valley. It was it was like a big amplifier. At nighttime, as soon as you pull away from the uh, the depot nearby the house, 
you're basically on the you're the tracks cut into the side of a mountain and you have these big giant sycamore oak trees that are a couple hundred years old on both sides of you and you don't see anything but the light generated from the headlight on the train and the steam you know blowing out of the front of it and it was like it it just never ever ever got tiring i just i absolutely loved it i mean it was like going back in time to the old wild west here i am you know i'm waiting for you know the somebody to rob the train or something i'm just it was so cool i never ever got tired of that it was just i really and then in the daytime if I had the opportunity there, we had a thing called the sky gazebo. There was, it was really, there was really no need for me to go up there other than it had a sound system. And we, part of my duty was somebody from the park needed to go up there once in a while and just check to make sure it had a big wooden deck and some, some telescopes that you could look out over the whole, it was way, way up on the top of this mountain. And it had some nice uh, lawn furniture and a nice dining room table that was covered in a sound system. So, you could see the entire valley up from up there. So, you know, sometimes I go up there right before the sun went down and that was kind of cool to just sit up there and, you know, like just check out the scenery. It was, it was, uh, so those are, those are probably two of my favorite places and times of day to, to, uh, get the, the Neverland experience. Thank you so much, Al. I have to admit, I'm actually getting quite emotional hearing <laughs> this and picturing it. You paint, quite the picture and you are really transporting us there and I, I just my absolute gratitude thank you so much oh it's it's my pleasure it's fun for me to relive this stuff and, and anytime i can you know share these memories with people that genuinely care about it it's uh, it's my pleasure yeah thank you so much big al i i'd also like to know about um, Michael's guests, you mentioned earlier that he, he sometimes would have very high profile guests come around, but did you notice him having, uh, visitors like people that would frequent there, like close friends that he'd have over often? I, I think most of his guests were people that the average person just wouldn't know who they were. Sometimes, you know, I would, somebody would show up, you know, a couple times a year and I'd, I didn't even know who they were. And I had their name on a security clearance. I still didn't know who they were. So, I think some of the really high profile names of famous people, I don't want to say that, I don't know the right way to say this. It wasn't like, you know, they're phony plastic people, but I think he, uh, I think he had more fun hanging out with just everyday people that you didn't even know who they were. I mean, people that he met, like there were, you know, Solvang was the nearest town and he would once in a while he would go, he, he could actually go there and not really be, mobbed or bugged i mean they, they i mean they knew he lived around there and they there was actually other celebrities that lived around there and i, I guess he really didn't get bothered that much but they had a lot of antique stores but sometimes he would meet people you know either they were local people or tourists or whatever and they'd come out they hey you want to come out to the ranch he didn't even know who they were you know he'd just meet them and talk to them and get to know them a little bit hey you want to come out to the ranch so uh, you know that would happen once in a while and of course obviously people that he worked with in the industry um you know he he uh He'd say, "Hey, do you want to go to the ranch?" Or they, you know, they they would ask him if they could go to the ranch, and and uh, but it was kind of, it was kind of a, a pretty good mixture of people that you know people that you you know some of them were people in the business and some of them were just people that he met. And uh, I remember one time he was he met this uh, they were Asian okay Asian people they were tourists spoke very little English. And, that, and I think the story I got from Michael was the guy was so excited about seeing Michael Jackson 
he actually broke the door handle on his rent van and uh, Michael started talking to him and said, follow me. And he had him follow him out to the ranch and he knew they had cameras. So he told the security to take their cameras and, and then he had security call me and say, hey, I got to bring some people in. And uh, so, I mean, it was, it was, you know, never, every day was something different, you know, when he was there or, or even, even when he wasn't there, you know, we would we still have guests a lot, but uh, it was quite a variety of people. That's so hilarious. <laughs> we know Michael had quite the sense of humor. Did he ever play any pranks on you? Yes. Yes, there was a few times, actually. Actually, I think I started, I was going to tell about the, I think it was about the second week I was working there. It was um, a pretty warm day. And I, and when you're, when Michael was there, I was kind of, there's another thing. I was kind of glad when the steam train got there, I got to dress in authentic steam train engineer. So I was wearing bib overalls, you know, it was, and I, if, if, if you were working in the park and you weren't running the steam train, you were wearing a black vest and a black dress tie and a white shirt and black dress pants. And on a hot day, that just, you know, it was not the most comfortable uniform to be wearing. But so it's about two weeks into my, my job there. And um, along the railroad tracks in front of the amusement park, there's a, there's the railroad tracks and there's about a, I don't know, three or four foot dirt, but it's got like, you know, just shrub, you know, ground shrubs or whatever. And then there's, then there's the the cement stamped cement looked like actually looked like antique brick but it was stamped cement that was the the midway for the amusement park well really close to the that edge right there we had this cart it was kind of like a vendor's cart that you would see you know on the on the pier at the boardwalk or in the amusement park and it was a, it was a, had a snow cone machine had a little cover over the top of it and i knew that the guests were coming down to the park so i was grinding up some ice cuz the ice had all melted I could hear a golf cart driving down the, the, the road where the railroad tracks were. They were actually in cement, so you could drive, uh, you know, the, you could drive the golf cart. And I heard, because the cement was that stamped material, you could hear the, the rumble of the tires go across this, these, uh, this uh, cement. And it stops right behind me, and I just keep going, you know, because I think this is like the first time I'd been there and when Michael was there, I think. I don't, I don't know. but And uh, I hear this. I hear Michael's voice. He goes, uh, sure is a hot day today, isn't it? And I kind of just glanced over my shoulder. Yeah, it sure is. And I went back to grind an ice. And all of a sudden, wham, a water balloon hits me square in the back. <laughs> and the golf cart takes off. And I hear this. I hear Mike, I hear Michael laughing. And he goes, it wasn't me. <laughs> and Because there was about, you know, there were like four people on the golf, four or five people on the golf cart. I actually thought, you know, well, first of all, it was nice and cool and refreshing. <laughs> and then I thought, I thought, Huh, I think this is going to be a fun place to work. And then a little bit, I think when I went home that night, I was thinking about that. And I was like, I go, do I know anybody on this planet or will I ever meet anybody on this planet that can say they got in a water fight today with Michael Jackson, <laughs> a water, a water balloon fight. So, so it was, yeah, it, was, it was an impressive moment for me. And then, there was another time on the steam train. Now, we, we the steam train, the guy that operates the steam train, there's a lot of, even though we had a really nice fancy computer on there that helped monitor all the safety stuff, there's still, it's basically, you know, a very old, honest to goodness, live steam train. There's still things you need to watch. And there's a lot of valves. Michael's there with some guests, and they're way at the back of the last car. So, I mean, it's like, they're way, way back there. And I, I take off, and... Uh, I'm sitting there and I'm watching the gauges and I'm watching the water and uh, paying attention to it. And it was nighttime, so I was kind of, you know, getting my excitement of 
going back in time and seeing the steam and the, the old sycamore and oak trees. And all of a sudden I kind of see, you know, I, I, I got to remind you that we're, we're out in the boonies. I mean, it's not that, it's not that uh, uncommon to see wildlife out there, deer and who knows what, you know, wild boar. I mean, it's uh, we're out in the boonies. So all of a sudden I see kind of like this shadow move over my left and it scared the crap out of me. I almost jumped out of the train. And I look over and it's Michael. Now he walked up the side of these coaches, which, I mean, it's not like a walkway you can walk on. He had to hang on and and go from the very back seat, the whole length of that car to the next car and the entire length of that car. And then I don't know how he got over the water tender, but he's in the cab with me and it's, and he knows he scared the crap out of me and he is laughing. And all he wanted me to do was turn the music up, but when it, my, I mean, my heart's pounding. And I looked at him and I said, don't do that. And he laughed. I mean, I felt bad about, you know, uh, telling him don't do that, but it did. It, scared, it really, it scared me. Cause I thought there was some, I thought a bear or something was jumping in the cabin. Anyway, he goes, he looked at me like, you know, like he, like a kid that got in trouble. He looked at me, he goes, can you turn the music up a little bit? I said, okay. <laughs> Oh my god, that's so funny! <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, that was. Um, I, was t- I was telling somebody the other day about. I said, they were asking about the moments out there. You know, one of my favorite moments, and there was a couple times that I had Michael laughing so hard that I thought he was going to stop breathing. I mean, he was in tears, almost laughing. One of them was, and I go now telling you some some people. I tell the story. I have to have the the video queued up to show them. You know, you got to picture the, the video for Speed Demon, you know, where it's part part live action and part claymation. Dan, who was uh, one of the mechanics out there, he, I don't know why it was just him and I. My guys were off that day. I, I don't know why. But anyway, uh, Dan and I are in the park, and security calls and said, uh, Michael's coming down there, with, and he, he wants two scooters. You know, we had these little tiny mopeds. And we had, I don't know, we had six or eight of them. So Dan and I hop in my golf cart and we go back. We had him actually, to, to keep him out of the weather, we had him in the train barn at the back of the ranch. So we hop in my golf cart, go back there, and uh, we hop on these two scooters. And we're driving towards the amusement park. And by the time we get there, Michael and this other guest are already there. And I'm, I'm like 500 feet away from Michael, and he is looking at me on this little scooter that you can barely see under me. Dan's like five foot something and weighs about, you know, 90 pounds. I mean, he's so nothing hilarious about that. But me, you can barely see the scooter underneath me. And I, and I can tell that he's laughing at me. I mean, he is just hysterically laughing. So I drive right up within about two inches of his toe and slam on the brakes. And I go, hey, mister, want to autograph my belly? <laughs> 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 I'm telling you, he, and he immediately, I'm sure, I'm sure he was already thinking about this video when he was laughing at me because he goes, he, he goes, Big Al looks like those two fat guys on that video. I <laughs> so, so I'm sure he already had this picture in his mind. So it just, it just, again, it was just one of those things that came out of my mouth and he, he was, he was hysterically laughing. Over that. <laughs> oh, that's <Love> great. <laughs> we had a question in here, um, Big Al, about what, if you could look back, what would be the most precious memory you have of your time with Michael? Would one of the stories you've already told be that, or do you have an even more precious memory of your time with Michael? Sitting underneath that 
that big giant uh, oak tree for almost two hours just talking, just me and him just talking was probably, I mean, it gives, it, it gives me goosebumps just talking. I mean, I look back at it now and it was just, it was, it was an amazing moment. And how I could actually, there's a story that leads up to that. The Jumbotron was the Jumbotron that was used on a tour. We put it in the amusement park when it wasn't on tour. And we had, at that time, DVDs weren't a thing yet. So we had this sound system, of course, for Michael Jackson had to be, it was an amazing sound system. And we had both, if you look at the, the videos from the tour, what, what we did there is we, we took, it was two jumbotrons, one on stage right, one on stage left. And we stuck them together and you can, you can configure the computer where it turns into one big picture to two smaller pictures. So we had this big, you know, 30 by 30 or whatever it was, jumbotron with this, you know, 50,000 watt giant sound system on it. And they brought me you know, hundreds of laser discs and hundreds of videos. And they had a rack in there that looked like I could have run the space shuttle from it. And it had... It had uh, the European format uh, VHS. It had the American VHS. It had the three-quarter inch. It had the whatever the new state. I mean, it had everything. And satellite. It had everything. And then they said, all you're supposed to play on this is Peter Pan, the, the animated version <laughs> of Peter Pan. I go, okay, why do I have all of this stuff? If that's all, Why don't you just give me like four copies of that movie so when it wears out, I can put a new copy of it. That's just the way it is. That's what we want. So this particular day, leading up to him and I sitting underneath this tree, again, I'm sitting at my desk. Not to sound like that's all I do is sit at my desk, but I was at my desk, and I heard, I heard somebody come in. I turned around, it was Michael. And he goes, he goes Big Al. He goes, I wish I had a picture of the inside of this room. It, it's, there, there's a ride that looks like a, a pirate ship called the Sea Dragon at the, at, in Neverland. And behind it, was this building? It was fairly. It wasn't. It was like the length of the ride, and it was one level. And I had an office in there that was had its own separate door, and then we had a bunch of cabinets and like a little break room. And it, but it also housed the hydraulic components for the ride, and then it had all this stuff for the jumbotron. And so it was kind of a maintenance, mechanical room, maintenance room, break room, office, all this stuff in this one little building. So he comes in there. And he goes. He goes. Yeah. Do we have anything besides Peter Pan? And I'm like, all right, boy, do we? I have all kinds of stuff. So I take him back to the back. A picture of all this hydraulic stuff would really help the story. But if you can imagine, I mean, there's all these hoses and solenoids and this big giant, uh, you know, seventy or eighty gallon hydraulic tank, and I mean, all this mechanical stuff that's that's got to be you know thirty foot long and you know five or six foot wide. Just all this mechanical stuff. And we have to walk past that. I mean, there's there's a nice big walkway. We have to walk past that to get where, to where the cabinet is, where all the movies are. And he stops and he's looking at this thing like I'm thinking. And I, I see it every day, and I'm thinking, well, he's never been in here. He has no reason to come in here. He rides a ride. He doesn't work on him. And he's looking at this thing, and, he, and I can tell that he's kind of fascinated by it. And he goes, uh, and this is the, this is another one of my favorite moments. And it probably sounds corny to anybody that's not into mechanical stuff, I guess, but. He goes, what is all this stuff? <laughs> and so I explained it to him, and I didn't go into a lot of I – mean, I just said, you know, this is a hydraulic tank. This is a motor, and, these, you know, there's two big old giant tires underneath the ride, and this tells it when to go that direction, when to go that direction, when to go up, and when to go fast, and when to go slow, and when to stop. And, and I'm telling you, if he was here today, right now, he could, 
you could take him in that room and he'd tell you whatever. I mean, he was he was listening to me like this was going to be his next job. He's going to be working for me on the Sea Dragon. I mean, he was really, and I just I could tell that he was just fascinated by it. I think it was you know something I see all the time. But, but anyway, so then we go back there and he's looking through all these movies, Michael videos, and he just he didn't want to see any of those. So he's looking and looking and looking and looking. He's back there looking for you know five or ten minutes, and finally, okay, let's watch this. And so he pulls out this laser disc. And it's the movie Hook. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, that's a big stretch from Peter Pan, but okay. So I put it in, and I'm thinking, he's just going to sit out there and watch it for a few minutes and leave, right? And so I put it in. We got there, and we're looking at it, and I'm just standing there. And he goes, he goes, uh, he goes, sit down for a minute. So I sat down, and the movie started. And uh, we just started talking about Neverland and, you know, why it's here and, you know, and, and, and we just talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and watched the whole time. And he, he goes, see this? I, I, helped, I helped to design some of this set here. You know, he's just, he's telling me about the movie and this and that. And then he starts talking about Steven Spielberg. Then we go back to talking about Neverland. And so that was, I mean, just getting to sit there and talk to him, like two guys just talking, you know, at a picnic bench was, was a pretty, pretty big moment for me. That's very special. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Big Al, can you maybe walk us through the last time that you had the chance to speak to Michael? Oh, that's kind of tough because it was uh, during the trial. You know, I don't even remember what I said, but I, I would see him every morning. He'd be over there in the movie theater with, uh, and I can't even remember her name, but she did, like, got him ready to go to court. And, um, you know... Usually it was, I was across the street at the park and it was just like, I would wave at him and I tried to make eye contact with him. And, and that's one thing about Michael. And I, I think most people around him kind of, you can make eye contact with him and you can communicate with him. And I, I mean, the last few times I actually was around him and there was really no words. It was just, I mean, I, I you know, I tried to let him know that, you know, I'm, I'm behind him, I'm supporting him and I wish he wasn't going through it. I mean, I was trying to say all that with my eyes and I, I just hope that he, hope he got all that because that was the last time I saw him. It's sad to reflect on and think about that he'd built this life at Neverland and interacted with all of you guys as employees and, you know, family and friends and that was his world. And then suddenly it was all turned on its head and he he didn't really go back there. It must have been a huge adjustment and shift for you guys as employees as well after that trial, I'd imagine. There's a picture out there you can see when they announced the verdict. I was actually in Santa Maria and took the day off and they, and I got in my truck and I drove like a hundred miles an hour to the ranch. Cause I said, there is no way I am not going to be there when he comes home after all the crap he's been through to show my support. And and somewhere out there, you can find a picture. It's kind of a grainy picture. It looks like it was, it was from a news helicopter footage, but it's all the employees line the roads coming down that last hill to the to the gates that said Neverland. We're on both sides. You know, there's a hundred of us out there, all holding hands. You know, and we we greeted him coming back, and that was uh, that was a pretty special moment for all of us, I think. Wow. And we've got a question for you that we ask every single special guest we ever have on the MJ Cast. People that knew and worked with Michael, Big Al. How do you think Michael Jackson should be remembered? Hmm. Well, I'm really glad that, uh, you know, the generations of fans are, I mean, I see people out there that are, 
you know, in their twenties and thirties and they're passing on Michael's music and uh, everything to the next generation. I, and I, and I tell them this when I went to, I went to a, an event that Brad Sundberg put on in the studio with MJ. I went there and spoke one day about Neverland. And I tell him, I said that it's great that we're passing on this music and dance entertainment. You got to tell him, you know, tell him some of the stories I'm telling you about the real Michael Jackson. I said, the humanitarian stuff that he does that, you know, bringing those kids from the hospital in the inner city. I know that's the stuff that people, that, that to me is more important. I mean, I, yeah, I hope they sell lots of albums and, you know, the estate does great with all that, but remembering Michael, I want them to just know what a person, what kind of a, a generous, compassionate, caring, honest, you know, person he was. Big Al, the amusements are long gone. The property is up for sale. I don't know if you know where the, the steam train has gone to, but how do you feel about the ranch as it is now and the position it finds itself in? Well, I can't tell you, I can't tell you where, but I know that the both trains and the carousel are in storage and, and they still belong to the estate. Everything else, all the other rides were sold, but both trains are, are safe and tucked away in uh, the carousel. And that was actually at Michael's, uh, request before he passed away when they started closing the ranch down. He goes, I, I don't want the, those two, those three pieces need to need to stay with me. So, and the way the ranch is now, I, I know the guy that's, that's, well, I shouldn't say I know him, but the person that is in a partnership with the estate on the property is taking very good care of it. One of the employees that uh, used to work there when I did, I think they still go out there occasionally and do some, some maintenance work. And they said it looks like Michael's coming on. This guy's and this guy's a you know billionaire and he owns several companies. And uh, but they say he's taking very good care of it. And, and so I mean it looks nice. But you know and people have asked me you know, if they opened it back up and, and did everything you know the way you wanted it done. Would you go back there? And, I mean I'd really like to see all that charity work continue on. I mean, it'd be hard to go back there without Michael. I know the last time I left there, he was still alive, but I, there was a sign when you leave, Michael wanted everybody to, whether they were coming back or not, he wanted to, in their mind, he wanted them to, you know, because a lot of people, when you leave there, you're sad. You know, it was a fun day, and, you, you know, it was a once-in-a-lifetime thing for him. And the sign, when you come down the hill, going back out towards the front gate, it said goodbye for now. It didn't say goodbye. It said goodbye for now. So he went, and, and the last, I remember the last time I went over that thing, I said, ah, I'm not ever coming back here. And it was, it was, it was pretty sad. So, but I don't know if they open it up, put all the rides back there. And if they just, if they let me tell them, okay, this is how we're going to do it. I still just don't think I could be there without Michael being there. I mean, it would be, it would be tough. I guess if we did enough charity work, I could keep my mind on that and, and, and see, you know, what a, what a big impact it made on, on those families. Like, it, you know, like I remember from the good old days, I mean, I, I guess I could probably, get used to it and live with it, but it'd be tough not seeing him there every once in a while. I still, I still, I would say probably at least once a month. Yeah, I'm one of those people when I dream, I wake up the next day and I, I know I dream, but I, I can't, and I know people that can tell you, sit there and tell you an hour long rendition of what their dream was and every single detail. I'm not one of those people, but I know that about once a month, I have a dream that I'm at Neverland and I'm getting things ready for Michael to come home. And then when I wake up, I'm like, I'm in tears because I realize there's a dream. It'd be nice if I could, well, I don't know, I, I'm not organized enough to do something like this, but 
it would be kind of nice to do something out there. There's, there's, a, you know, there's some other employees and, you know, maybe some fans and I don't know, just to get a group of people out there and do something, you know, kind of like, you know, they, they did a bunch of stuff this, you know, on the anniversary of his birthday or on the anniversary of his death or whatever. It'd be kind of nice to do something fan oriented and get some of the old Neverland employees out there. But I, I don't know. It's, it's still, it would be tough. I'd like to go back out there someday but I don't know it's, it's I'm kind of you know bittersweet I guess yeah
Hi, this is Terrell Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Al, what lessons did you learn from your time that you worked at Neverland that you took with you into future jobs? Being around Michael was um, how little little things touch people's lives, and and uh, and I remember I remember him saying this one time that it doesn't matter who you are, or there's always somebody that you can. You know that you can reach out and help. You know somebody's down in the dumps. You know lower than you are. You can. Re- you know you. It doesn't matter what your resources are. You, you can always do something to help somebody. You know. You know. And and, and I kind of. I mean, and that really stuck with me. That that you know. And I and I don't really sit around thinking about how miserable my life is because I'm very happy. I've been. I mean, I just all all stuff I've been telling you. What a blessing. I mean, I wish I was still out there. I was still going on, but I, I'm very very, very blessed to have had that time. And, and I'm part of a, I'm part of a very small group of people that got to know Michael the person. And I'm very happy with that. And, uh, and just his kindness and his compassion and, and everything. I mean, it's just, it, it just, it changed me. I mean, I think about that stuff all the time when I'm around people and, and, um, I think that's just, you know, it just kind of rubbed off on me and, and I just look at life a little bit differently. Thanks to him in a positive way. Well, we know from uh, our email contact with you and Elise chatting with you that you're a very, very busy man. Just as we wrap up, let our listeners know what you're up to now and uh, maybe some of the jobs you've got coming up. Well, like I said, I'm at the Orange County Fair in Costa Mesa, California. It's a it's a very large fair, probably one of the top 25, I would say, in North America. And from here, I'm going to a uh, much smaller fair, Rock Springs, Wyoming. And I'll be up there for about a week, and then I have a, a bunch of uh, smaller fairs that are just one. This fair runs actually five weekends. That's how many people they run through here. But the next four or five fairs I'm doing are all one week each, and I'm going to be up in Wyoming and Idaho and Utah and over in Arizona. And uh, I'll be doing the, the same thing where I uh, inspect amusement rides, and uh, I stay busy up until um, – probably about the first part of November and then I'll take a, take a month and a half off. And, uh, then I start back up again, usually somewhere in January doing the same thing. So, and also Al, it's not just County and sort of state fairs, but I remember in one of the emails you mentioned to me that you were at like a music festival as well. Oh yes, I do. And I'm sure some of the fans out there are familiar with this and if they're not, they need to Google it. I do uh, EDC, which is also known as the Electric Daisy Carnival. It's a uh, electronic dance music festival. It's probably one of, if not the big. Well, the one I do in Las Vegas is is probably one of the biggest or the biggest in the world. And it's a three day music festival, and they um, 
they also have uh, 18 to 20 amusement rides and they're free with the paid admission to the festival. And uh, I do I do EDC Las Vegas. I do EDC Orlando. And then, uh, then there's a just one ride that goes to Coachella and Stagecoach, and I do the safety there. So, yeah, I, I, I have a little bit of variety. I've done some stuff for uh, Warner Brothers Studios. Yeah, anybody has an amusement ride that, that uh, is impressed with my uh, credentials and wants me to come out and do some work for them, I, uh, I used to do international stuff i really don't do much of that anymore i just have no desire actually i'd really like to go out of the country to some other places and and actually go there on like a vacation or to visit or whatever but i've done work in china and uh several places in europe and uh, so yeah i get around and stay busy well as such a busy guy we on behalf of our listeners truly thank you for the, the few hours that you've given us today, probably just scratching the surface of your many, many years uh, of working at Neverland and with Michael. This has been such a beautiful way for Michael to be remembered and celebrated by uh, taking us on that journey to Neverland where you spent so much time. From the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. It's uh, like I said, it's it's my pleasure. I love sharing these stories, and I really like to I like people to get to know more about Michael. That that you know, it's it's a good thing. Thank you very much. We're really appreciative that you could join us on the MJ Cast. It's been a very special way to honor Michael's birthday, and we feel very honored to hear your stories. Thank you, Al. You're very welcome. Michael Jackson, how about that? Happy birthday, MJ. What a way to celebrate. I have to say, if I could have asked for any Michael Jackson birthday present, a trip to Neverland, that'd be like pretty much top of the list. So, absolutely. Yeah, pretty thrilled and just so happy that that's what we got to do. We got to like visit Neverland with Big Al. Big Al, and he was—he's such an unsung hero of the community. I love talking with people that played a really big role in Michael's life that you don't normally hear about all the time. He's got such a great story. Indeed, I remember when we spoke to Taj back in season one, and he um, off air he said, "Oh, here's like a list of people that you should talk to," and you know that was what. It's like the chat that ends up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. And I'm quite certain that Big Al was one of those names. And for years, I was like, what was that name about the Neverland guy? I couldn't figure it out. And then it was like this year when, you know, he helped correct the narrative about the 
the train station and Neverland and such that I was like, that's the guy. We need to get this guy. We need to get this guy. That's the guy. And he's just such a normal sort of down-to-earth guy. He hasn't let, you know, that go to his head. The fact that he worked with Michael for so many years and lived down the road from Neverland and was at Neverland every day forever. And it's like, he's just a normal dude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the fact that we got to share that with everyone for Michael's birthday, it's just, it's just perfect. I love that. What was your highlight of the, the, his stories? Oh, there's, you know, there's stories that we didn't even get to just because of time, always hearing about Neverland, like just about the feeling and the vibe of the place. It's the vibe of the thing. <laughs> but also the, the train stuff, like like learning about, you know, the, the different train tracks and the actual trains themselves, the the machine the engines oh man you went full train mode you were like i i had no idea you were that knowledgeable about trains i'm like you guys are talking about gauges and i'm like what <laughs> i did have notes in front of me <laughs> i did you come came with your train game on <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. it's a shame that can't be the name of the show <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> the train game i had notes in front of me that i'd uh researched from um a book that i have on disney trains and also uh the internet before um yes there was other nerdy stuff that was on those notes that didn't come up, but that's okay. That's probably for the best. But <laughs> yes, I think also just like learning about the whole charity and humanitarian side of Neverland is it's like so underreported that when we get to shine a light on that, that's always a massive highlight. Uh, yeah, definitely. I agree. It was like prime, you know, it's hard to, th- I'm not really sure what the answer is to this, but would you say Neverland was more a charity enterprise for hundreds of people or was it more a home? What was it primarily? Because Michael spent a lot of time away from there as well, yeah. as we've learned. I think pretty much 50-50. Like I think that element and vision for it was always a huge part of it and how it developed. And that's why he so often got, you know, sick kids and underprivileged kids and families to come and visit. So I think 50-50, I think, you know, he maybe bought it for privacy and seclusion and like in Jermaine's book, Jermaine talks about all the things that they could see out their bedroom window or recording studio windows when they were growing up, like, you know, Christmas lights and other people's houses and trains, things like that. And then when he got his own place with the space, he had the means to do all those things that he grew up and wasn't able to do. So I think there's definitely that element to Neverland Ranch. But then I think he also could see by sharing those things, wasn't just him that missed out on those. There were other kids that don't get to experience that. So I think he saw this opportunity that he could then share and open his doors, all of these wonderful things, while at the same time that was a family home when he had a family. 
my highlight of the interview was learning about Big Al and MJ sitting out on the Neverland Green watching Hook on that giant jumbo <laughs> from one of the world tours. That was yeah. crazy. And I wished we'd had the time because Big Al dropped that little tidbit. He was like, and Michael was sort of like commenting on the the film and, and ideas or something he had with Steven Spielberg that were in the movie and because that, that is interesting, the whole relationship between Michael and Spielberg leading up to that film. So I reckon he yeah. would have dropped some interesting tidbits to Big Al around the movie. Well, in the music that played around Neverland Ranch, there was actually quite a number of songs from the Hook soundtrack mm. that were in that background music loops that, you know, would have played to the gardens and around the the ranch and the park so very fitting when when you saw the movie hook when it first came out in whenever it was the 90s did you know there was a connection between the film and michael i think so yes i think so but i think over the years we've sort of learnt more about that development and how when hook Spielberg sort of moved forward with Hook. It was not the project that Michael had initially been super interested in. It had developed into mm. something like, you know, Peter Banning was a lawyer. I don't think that was the, the sort of vision that it started out as. I think that would be a really good Moonwalk Talks episode. <gasps> Jenkins, get on it. <laughs> the history of Hook. I love that movie. Yeah, it is It is a special one. It's great. Well, what another good special episode. I really enjoy talking to Big Al, and I hope that our listeners have as well. Yes. Hope they can share it. Yeah. Yeah, get it out there on social media for other fans to listen to. The real Michael. That would be super. That's it. The real Neverland. Particularly important this year. So we had some songs in this episode, didn't we? Some good ones. We did. Thank you for letting me pick those. Um, we had a We Are The World, which this YouTube description that I'm looking at doesn't really give a lot of information who that's by, but I know it's from South Africa and a whole huge group of artists from uh, South Africa and also Africa and uh, all the countries around there which the list is huge so there was also an i'll be there remix by dj hasby from the j5 of course and then there was a michael jackson and j friends people of the world mj quotes edit that's your earworm for the rest of the day people of the world it's clever how they did that, mixing the original demo with the J Friends one. Yes, I was beyond stoked when I found that because that was precisely what I was hoping to find. And I'm very happy that someone did it. Nice little gem. Really good. Yes. 
we can be found online if people want to follow more of uh, what we do other than just our podcasts. We do have lots of social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, all as The MJ Cast. You can also contact us if you want through email uh, at themjcast at iCloud.com. That's our preferred method of getting communications rather than DM, just saying. Absolutely. Um, we can't get to all the DMs. It's just we can't do nope. it. So, yeah, hopefully drop us a line. Tell us what you thought of the of the episode and we'd love to hear from you. And share it, share it, share it. Let other fans celebrate Michael's birthday in this way as well. That's that's the main thing is, you know, we're all celebrating around the world together Michael's birthday this year in 2019. And what better way to help that than have other fans join in and celebrate with you and share this content with them. And you can share it via the different podcast apps that you're listening to. So we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Google Play and Google Podcasts. Is that a different thing? I've got no idea. I don't know. And I don't know. And um, like Android podcast apps like Podcast Republic and we're on Spotify. And, yeah, you can just hit that share podcast link and Send it out there so other people can enjoy it. Absolutely. Well, been another great episode for Michael's birthday. Done a few good ones over the years, but this has got to be one of my absolute favorites we've done. Me too. Oh, my gosh. I remember I kept saying, like, I'm so happy we got this in the bag because we recorded this, like, a little bit earlier, which was also very helpful, but I was just so happy that we got it in the bag. I was sick at the time. We, you were, you weren't sick then, were you? Um, no, no, you were. Now I'm sick. Yeah. <laughs> well, we both are now. So yeah, I had a throat infection, like a sore throat back then that I needed antibiotics for. Um, and then it's been a couple of weeks since we recorded. And then you got really sick this week. Oh, yeah. And then I've got like a mega cold, like a head cold, where I'm like dripping like a tap out of my nose. So I'm like doped up on cold medicine and decongestant nasal spray and oh my god but the good thing is we'll be better by the time it actually is michael's birthday to go and do our own celebrations yes absolutely that is right um we got to give a big special thank you as well to elise who put this episode planning together um elise actually went and met Big Al at a local San Diego fair, I believe, before we recorded the episode and caught up with him and hung out. And um, really, this show was able to happen out of their um, communication. So thank you, Elise, for putting all this together. Yeah, I'm really happy for her. Bit jealous. (laughs) Just a bit jealous. (laughs) But yes, thank you, Elise. Well, that is a wrap. Go out and celebrate loudly Michael's birthday this year. Be loud and proud and make it big. Happy birthday, MJ. And to all of our listeners, keep Michaeling. Michael on. The MJ Cast.